If you belong to Jesus, Jesus is continually praying for you. Jesus prays that his Father will protect the faith of his disciples and keep them in his care and grace. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Students, if you could open your Bibles to John 17, John 17, we're, Lord willing, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 12 today. Uh, it's Thursday night, it's just hours before the cross, Jesus is going to be leaving his disciples, they don't know that yet, he's going to the cross, he's going to be resurrected, he's going to ascend back into heaven, he's going to be exalted to sit at the right hand of the Father, they don't know any of that yet, he's just told them he's leaving them. And they are anxious and very upset about being left alone. And he knows the disciples are very dependent on his visible presence. So he promises them the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit will physically, spiritually rather, come and fill them, teach them, comfort them, and permanently indwell them. In uh, chapters 13 through 17, this is called the Farewell Discourse. This all takes place on Thursday night. John alone records this particular discourse of all the gospel writers. And now in John 17, Jesus prays to his Father and asks him to make all the promises that he has just made to the disciples a reality. He asks God to protect them and he asks God to sanctify them, to set them apart after he's gone into heaven. This is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in Scripture. It's uh, 26 verses, 623 words. It's an intimate prayer between God the Father and God the Son, the only one recorded in Scripture. And it's an audible prayer. It's prayed out loud, prayed for the benefit of the disciples. John records it for us here. Nowhere else in Scripture do we have such intimate access to a conversation uh, between the Trinity, the Trinity, of course, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are infinite, and finite human beings could never understand unless it had been revealed to us. And so John records this uh, for our benefit. It is literally the Holy of Holies and probably the most profound chapter in the Bible. Now, the overarching purpose of this prayer is that God the Father would be glorified through the Son and through the disciples, both present and future. And this prayer can be divided into three sections. Last week we looked at section 1, which is verses 1 through 5. And that section is about the, Jesus and his Father. And Jesus prays for himself during verses 1 through 5. He prays that he would be glorified through the cross uh, and that the Father would be glorified through the cross. Verses 6 through 19 we'll be looking at today and next week, Lord willing, it's about Jesus and his disciples. Jesus prays for his disciples that even though they are living in a very wicked, hostile world that is um, planning for their demise, God would keep them safe and God would keep them sanctified. 
It's important to understand that even though verses 6 through 19 are primarily directed to the 11 disciples that are alive, there is nothing said in verses 6 through 19 that does not apply to disciples throughout history. So when you read about Jesus talking about the 11, he uses the word them, the 11. He's not only talking about the 11, he's talking about you and I. He's talking about disciples throughout history for the last 2,000 years. And verses 20 to 26 are very clearly about Jesus and the future believers, uh, people who will come to faith in Christ as a result of the work of the 11 disciples. And he prays for future disciples. Interestingly enough, he prays that they would be unified, that they would be one, that they would live lives of loving, uh, sacrificial love for each other, that the world would believe that Jesus was divinely sent. Uh, obviously, you know, Satan is a God of disorder. God is a God of order. So when the church actually loves each other sacrificially, it is so unusual and so supernatural, it is probably the most effective testimony that Jesus Christ is real when we actually love each other. And there's a lot not to love. I mean, you know, you look in the mirror and go, yeah, what makes me so special? I'm not that easy to live with. But when we do love each other, supernaturally, it is a powerful testimony for the reality of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, Jesus prays that everyone he saves is going to be with him in heaven to see his glory. We talked a little bit about that last week when we looked at Revelation 1. Let's pick up the prayer in beginning in verse 6. Jesus is praying to his Father. Publicly, the disciples are listening, and Jesus says, quote, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understand that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Here's our first principle. By faith, we can have a personal relationship with sovereign God because Jesus, the God-man, revealed and explained God to us. That's a mouthful. Let me repeat that. By faith, we can have a personal relationship with sovereign God because Jesus, the God-man, revealed and explained God to us. And Jesus said, I have manifested your name. Manifest means to reveal. It means to make visible, to make known. To manifest the name of God means that Jesus revealed, Jesus made visible, Jesus made clear the very nature, plan, work, character, and attributes of God to humanity. And he says, I made clear your name. Now, in Scripture, your name represents the whole person. It represents who you are. It represents the nature of who you are. So in the Bible, when you are given a name, that name meant something. It was a representation of your character, your intrinsic nature. The Mary, Jesus, I mean, uh, the angel told Mary what? He said, I want you to name your firstborn son, Jesus, Yeshua, for, why? He will save his people from their sin. What does the name Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua mean? Savior. So the name Jesus meant Savior because that's what his life work was to save people from their sin. God changed Abram's name to Abraham. Abraham, which meant 
father of multitudes. That was his new name. And God had promised him in Genesis 12, many nations are going to come from you, father of multitudes. It's interesting, uh, Abraham and Sarah had a son at 100 years old and 90 years old, and they named him Isaac. What does the name Isaac mean? Laughter. And they probably undoubtedly got an enormous amount of laughter because Sarah laughed when God said, you're going to have a child, and she's 90, and she goes, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, well, now you name him Isaac. Every time you look at Isaac and you say laughter, it reminds you, hey, you're, remember, Jesus, God promised you this, and you didn't believe it. So there's laughter there. So the nature of the character was reflected in the name. Interesting little tidbit. You might do this for grins. I don't know if it'll work out anything. It might be interesting to look at the meaning of your name. How many of you know what your name means? You should. And see how your nature matches your name. Some of you might be saying, hmm. Yeah, you just Google it. You can Google it and you can find out what it means. I have seen some children's names that I really, they were so different. I thought, I wonder what mom and dad were thinking when they named their child that. Uh, you know, Jezebel, probably not a good name for a child, but at any rate. So, big picture. God, sovereign God, creator of heaven and earth, wants a personal relationship with the people he created in his own image. And to accomplish that, he is revealing himself to humanity. Scripture is a record of God's revelation to humanity throughout history. He revealed himself through the physical creation, through the universe. He reveals himself through providence. He reveals himself through prophets. He reveals himself through the written word. He reveals himself through his supernatural interventions in nature. Uh, if you want to look at probably the most dramatic Old Testament example of God's sovereign intervention in the affairs of humanity, you might want to take a look at the Exodus. Just read the first 10, 12 chapters of Exodus, and you will see God's supernatural providential hand working to free the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. That's the revelation of God to humanity. Sometimes God would directly interact with people. Uh, he did with Abraham, had a conversation with him, with Jacob, with Moses, with Gideon, with Isaiah. So the Old Testament is a record of God's revelation of himself to humanity. However, the incarnation of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, signaled a new chapter in God's revelation to humanity. God the Father sent God the Son down from heaven to earth in human form as the unique God-man, fully God, fully man simultaneously. And as the one and only God-man, Jesus showed humanity what God was like so that God and man's broken relationship could be reconciled, as you know, through the cross. So the God of the Bible is not a metaphysical construct. He's not a product of human imagination. God revealed himself, the second member of the Trinity, came down from heaven to earth in human form, in space and time, in history, documented history, to live among us, to show us, to manifest, to reveal, to make visible who God is for the purpose of God having a relationship with us and vice versa. So Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was to make God known so that people would understand and believe in him. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God, the Father, 
At any time, the only begotten God, Jesus, the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, in essence the same, he has explained him. What do you mean Jesus has explained the Father? Well, the word explain means to expound, to clarify, to analyze, to extract the meaning of something. When someone is explaining something to you, they're trying to help you comprehend what it means and they're trying to extract the key issues with relationship to that and they want to extract that and communicate that. And Jesus said what? I and the Father are one. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be able to reveal God because he's the same nature, the same essence as God. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And you say, well, how do you know an invisible God? Well, Jesus told Thomas, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He made God visible. Now, everyone who is born, physically born on earth, is born with a sin nature we inherited from Adam. Furthermore, you're born into the world system that is controlled by Satan. However, in Satan's kingdom of darkness, there are some sinners who God has chosen. Sinners who belong to him. Jesus said, Father, you gave me these disciples out of the world. It's the doctrine of divine sovereign election. It basically says that everyone who is saved was chosen by God for salvation before creation. Ephesians 1.4 tells us, quote, Just as he, the Father, chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we, you and I, would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, to himself, the Father, according to the kind intention of his will. So God created every human soul, and in eternity past, before he created you, he chose who would be saved. And he did not choose us to be saved because of us, he chose us in spite of us, right? There is nothing in us that made us attractive or valuable to him to choose us. You didn't exist yet physically when he chose you. He chose you because in his divine, infinite power and wisdom and foreknowledge, he chose based on his divine will. I don't understand why. When I look in the mirror, I'm saying, Lord, I bring nothing to you that has value. And the Lord says, well, congratulations, that's the beginning of wisdom, right? But God chose us for salvation, and then those he chose, he gave to his son. Jesus said, you gave them to me. Why would the Father give souls to the Son? So that Jesus could save them. You and I are love gifts from the Father to the Son. The whole point of this all is the father wants a bride for his son. Revelation 21 is the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, of course. Every Christian throughout all of history has been chosen by the father for salvation before creation and given to the son in order to save. See, once you and I belonged to Satan's kingdom of darkness. 
but now we are saved because God the Father chose us by name to be saved and gave us as a love gift to his son. Now, an illustration of this is the Apostle Paul is preaching in Corinth, and he's facing a great deal of opposition, and he is afraid. You don't think the Apostle Paul would be afraid, but the Apostle Paul was afraid. He was a human being. Acts 18.9 says, And the Lord said to Paul in the vision, in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. Now underline this, for I have many people in this city. So there were lost people in Corinth. It was a very wicked city. But God had already sovereignly elected and chosen some of them to be saved out of the world, out of the sinful world. And God was going to use Paul to bring the gospel to them so they could respond and be reconciled to God. Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8 tells us that before creation, when God chose someone for salvation, he documented his decision. He wrote your name in the book of life. You are saved because God chose you, but he documented the decision and he wrote your name in the book of life. And guess what? There's no erasers in God's book of life, right? He wrote it in ink or stone, whatever, right? In God's kingdom, what I'm trying to focus on here is nothing happens by chance. There is no world event that God looks at and says, whoops, I never saw that coming. There is nothing that happens by chance. There is no subatomic particle that moves, and evil does not happen without God allowing it for his sovereign purposes. The divine providence of our Heavenly Father covers everything on planet Earth. So when you look at your particular life, and what's going on, or you look at the chaos in the world, you have peace because Jesus said what? I have overcome the world. So, application for us. In your life, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, among your family and friends, God has already chosen some of those people you know for salvation. And their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But you don't know who they are. You don't know that they've been written down. But God knows they've been written down, and he wants you to introduce them to Jesus so they can be saved and exercise faith. Does that make sense? As you heard this morning, be an Andrew. Bring people, introduce people to Jesus. So Jesus is praying to his Father, and one of the things he says about his 11 disciples, he says, they have kept your word. They have believed that the words Jesus spoke were God's word, and they lived according to God's word. A Christian is someone who loves Jesus and delights to obey God's word. You know, this book is a joy to obey because Jesus gives us a new nature, and now we want to do the right thing. It's not like you have to force me to do the right thing. It's I have a nature that wants to do the things that please God. And like the 11, all Christians uh, believe that Jesus' mission came from God. When Jesus said, they have kept my word, and you look at 
doubting Thomas and denying Peter, you kind of go, oh, these 11 disciples have kept your word. Well, their faith was pretty weak. They were pretty immature. They were new in their faith, but their basic convictions were Jesus Christ came from God, is God the Messiah who came to save people from their sins. You don't have to be a mature Christian to be a Christian. You start somewhere, right? And Jesus said, they have kept my word. Everything they knew so far, they've obeyed. There was a lot more to learn, of course, but they did obey what they know. Verse 7. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words that you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So Jesus not only revealed God because he was the same essence as God, he never did anything apart from his heavenly Father. He was completely dependent on his Father. In John 5, 19, Jesus is answering and he talks to the Pharisees and the crowd and he says, quote, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does also in like manner. So all the words Jesus spoke, all the works Jesus performed, the Father gave him to do. In the flesh, he was completely dependent on his Father and that's one of the reasons we know that he prayed probably without ceasing for 30-some years, or at least when he reached the age of accountability. He says, the words which you gave me, which means the, the, the words Jesus spoke when he was here on earth came from God. They were not human words. They were not fallible words. They were God's words. And the supernatural works Jesus did demonstrated that his words were also God's word. His works proved his words. You know, anybody can claim to be God, right? I mean, even Shirley MacLaine pulled that off, right? The claiming, you know, not the behaving. However, acting like God acts is impossible, unless you happen to be God, right? Remember the time Jesus was teaching in Luke, and he was in a house, and the house was so packed that it was shoulder to shoulder and no one could get in. And there's a paralyzed man, and his friends are carrying him on a stretcher, and they desperately want to get him in front of Jesus for healing, so they peel back the roof, probably a thatched roof or a clay roof, and they lower the paralyzed man down in the stretcher, coming through the roof right down in front of Jesus, you know, quite the entrance. And Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and he sees his faith, which means you have to be God to see somebody's faith because faith is invisible, right? And the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, quote, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Whoa! So the Pharisees that are all listening, they think this guy's blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. No human being can forgive sins. Jesus says to them in Luke 5.23, only God could say this, by the way, which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Well, you can say either one, you know, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. Anything can fall out of your mouth. Verse 24 is the acid test. But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, 
get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately, he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. So Jesus said, I have the authority to forgive sins, which means I am God, and I will demonstrate that my words have divine origin by demonstrating visible command over disease. His works demonstrated his words. Jesus said, I have faithfully transmitted all the Father's words to my disciples. And they responded, they received God's words, they understood God's word, and they believed God's word. By the way, that's a pretty good definition of a Christian. Someone who receives God's word, understands God's word, and believes God's word. To receive God's word means you actually take it in, right? You listen to it. You take it inside you. Accept it. To understand God's words means you comprehend it. You don't need to comprehend all of it, but you need to comprehend that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. You're a sinner, and he came to save you. To believe God's word means you put your life to it. So a Christian is someone who accepts God's word, understands God's word, and commits their life to it. Now, over time, the disciples had come to the conclusion, they understood and believed that Jesus was the Christ, that his Father was in heaven. And actually, they didn't do that on their own. You and I have friends who we talk to about spiritual issues, and they think you are a lunatic. They think it has no bearing on my life at all because they are earth dwellers who only believe the five senses. The reality that Jesus came from his Father in heaven, that he is God who came to save the world, cannot be comprehended without divine intervention. Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, one of the most brilliant things ever to fall out of anybody's mouth, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in Matthew 6, 17, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because... Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You're not smart enough to figure it out in your three-pound brain, but my Father who is in heaven revealed it to you, right? No one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them through the power of the Spirit and opens their eyes to understand and believe that Jesus is God. That's why prayer is so important before you open your mouth and tell people about Jesus. Spend a hundred words talking with Jesus before you spend one word talking with them. So followers of Jesus are people of faith who believe that God sent Jesus to earth to complete the divine mission of salvation. The disciples now have come to that conclusion after three years. And Jesus is saying, I have transmitted your words and they got it. Verse 9. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Here's the principle. By the way, you need to understand, this passage is so dense. It is so calorie-rich, nutritionally rich, that we could spend months here. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 58 sermons on this, and Steve Lawson preached 26, one for each verse, and we're going to do it in four weeks, Lord willing. So we could go a lot deeper but we have the rest of the gospel waiting for us. Sidebar. Here's the principle. If you belong to Jesus, Jesus is continually praying for you. 
If you belong to Jesus, Jesus is continually playing for you. Jesus prayed for his disciples all the time. He prayed for them before he chose them. He prayed during his ministry for them. He prayed at the end of his earthly ministry. He prayed just before the cross as recorded here. And now that he's in heaven, he continually prays for his disciples. Ever since his ascension and his exaltation at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus has been praying for those he has saved. You know, just before he died on the cross for our sins, he said what? To tell us die. It is finished. Sin had been fully paid for at the cross. Jesus died to pay our debt to sin, but Scripture says he lives to bring us to glory. So now that you're saved, and heaven is your destination, most of you have been alive long enough to understand that it is a, can be a long journey from salvation to heaven. Yes, sometimes it lasts for decades. If you haven't read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, you should read it. Because we're on this pilgrimage from where we are now to heaven. And Satan knows that it's a long journey and he will do his best to tempt you to abandon Christ and follow him. As a matter of fact, Satan has set up this entire world system to seduce you to abandon Christ and seduce you into sin and get distracted by the things of this life. This entire world system is designed to draw you away from your master and get you off the path to heaven. That's the goal, his goal. Jesus knows for us to stay on the narrow path toward heaven, we need divine help every day. And so he prays for us every day. So Jesus is at the right hand of God in heaven praying for us. And the Holy Spirit, who lives inside you on earth, is praying for you every day as well. You've got prayer in heaven and prayer on earth, and you need both. Jesus, uh, Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, and what is his job description up there? who also intercedes for us, intercedes to the Father for us. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since why? He always lives to make intercession for them, for believers, for those whom the Father elected and gave to Jesus to save. Romans 8.26, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So God the Son in heaven and God the Spirit on earth are praying for you constantly. Constantly. And they pray for us because God knows we need prayer around the clock. Without divine intervention, we would surely succumb to Satan's schemes and none of us would stay faithful. None of us. Now, in this passage, Jesus makes it very clear. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom God has chosen for salvation. I'm praying for my disciples because they belong to me. 
By the way, the disciples will be the method that God uses to reach the world. But at any rate, let me, let me discuss this briefly. In Scripture, the world, the term the world, has three different meanings. First, it can mean the physical created material universe. God made the world and everything in it, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the physical material world. Second, the world can mean the world of people, the world of human beings. John records in John 3.16 what? For God so loved the world. He's talking about people, souls, that he gave his only begotten son. People need to be saved from sin. Third, here in John 17, where Jesus contrasts his own with the world, he's talking about the world being the organized system of people, principles, institutions, values, activities that are opposed to God, opposed to God's people, opposed to God's plans. Jesus is saying, I'm not praying for my Father's blessings on an evil, sinful, satanic system. You know, you pray for the souls of everyone that they would be saved, even terrorists. They desperately need salvation. But you do not pray that their activities will succeed because their activities are evil. You don't pray for the success of evil. You pray for the salvation of the evildoer that they will be reconciled to God and be transformed and stop being evil. So really the only prayer for the world that Jesus condones is pray for their salvation. Pray that they would repent from their evil ways. Pray that the Lord would stop that evil because God hates evil, right? So we're to pray for the salvation of all people. Even people you don't like, right? 1 Timothy 2.4 God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And you know who needs to be saved? People who sin, right? Pray for them. The Son will save those the Father has chosen. Now Jesus says, all things are mine, and yours are mine, and mine is yours. So Jesus is fully God, so everything that belongs to the Son belongs to the Father and vice versa. Anybody can say, everything I have is yours, God. Of course, he does. He created you. But none of us can say, God, all that you have belongs to me. We're creatures. Only Jesus the Son can say that. So Jesus, when he says, all that you have is mine, all of my have, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be one with God in essence and in purpose. Verse 11. He says, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Here's the principle. Jesus prays that his Father will protect the faith of his disciples and keep them in his care and grace. Jesus prays that his Father will protect the faith of his disciples and keep them in his care and grace. Now, he's going to leave them. He says, I am no longer in the world. And you say, well, hold it. You're still here praying. What do you mean you're no longer in the world? He is imminently going to die, be resurrected, and exalted into heaven. In God's kingdom, whatever God decrees to happen is as good as done because nothing will thwart God's plans. So Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world. He dwells outside time, and when God says, you're going to the cross, that had been determined in eternity past, so Jesus spoke of it as if it already happened. But he was leaving his disciples in a very hostile world, and so he requests that the Father protect them, keep them while they're living in the world. And you say, well, 
Does that still operate today? Of course. You know, God could take every believer home at the moment of salvation. You become saved, you're out of here. Time to go to heaven. But his plan is to redeem the lost world using those who have been saved, right? So he redeems people from an evil world system, saves them, and then sends them what? Back into the evil world system to save others. That's the plan. He uses an interesting title, Holy Father. It refers to two aspects of God's nature. Holy means to be set apart and separated from sin. God is completely separated from sin. And Father is a term of intimate, loving, protective relationship. So God is both pure and hates sin, but at the same time, he's an intimate Father who loves, protects, and cares for his own even when they do sin. So Holy Father is both sides of God's character. There's a lot of sides, but there's two of the most important ones. He's both transcendent, above his creation, separate from evil, and he's intimate with people who do sin. He's intimately relational with the creatures he loves, and at the same time, he is opposed to sin. And Jesus asked his father, quote, keep them in your name, the name you have given me. And you say, well, why does God the Father need to keep all those who follow Jesus? Because they're in the world, and the world is going to persecute them and try to kill them. And in fact, we'll kill all the 11 disciples. We need divine protection. That's one of the things the Father and the Son spend day and night praying for, for you. It means that the Father will protect his loved ones by the power of his name. He'll keep them safe from evil by the infinite power he possesses. He will also keep you loyal to him. He, Jesus says, keep their faith from failing when they experience persecution. Keep them in your care. Keep them in your grace. Keep them saved. Keep them on the path to heaven. Don't let them get distracted on earth. Protect them from sin. Protect them from the hatred of the world who loves to sin. Keep them faithful to your words. Jesus said, I gave them your words, Father. Keep them faithful to your words. Well, we have the words of the Father right here. The Father and the Son, the Spirit and the Son are praying right now that you would stay faithful to this word because this shows you who God is. How do we stay faithful to the word? Open it. Read it. Love it. Obey it. Right? Those are all things that not only does Jesus command us to do, he prays that the Father will assist us in doing. And he says that they may be one even as we are one. Now, many times we think he's talking about horizontal unity. You know, we need to love each other. Well, that's coming in a few verses. Right now, he's talking about vertical unity. He says, this is a unity between the believer and God. The Father and the Son are what? One in nature. They are intimate. There is no separation between the Father and the Son. They are one. They're two distinct beings, but they're one in essence and one in nature. Jesus is saying, I want you, disciples, to be as connected with me as I am with my Father. I want you to be that intimately connected and one with me and my Father as we are with each other. That is a level of unity and oneness that we are to attain uh, through his power and through our perseverance.
So the whole goal of keeping the disciples faithful and loyal is that they would be as connected and intimate and abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Father as the Father and the Son are. That's our model at that point in time. So Jesus is saying, protect them, Lord, so that they will be able to do that. He's basically praying that no one's going to fall away from the faith. You'll notice throughout this prayer, Jesus continually emphasizes God's sovereignty. Throughout this prayer, he is exalting the sovereignty of his Father as being in control of everything. When you're facing suffering, and some of you are, some of us in the next few years are going to die. It's going to happen. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I know it's going to happen. When you look at the world and you look at the brokenness on the planet, you look at the hatred on the planet, it's crucial to remember that God is in control of everything. Just because you can't see his control doesn't mean he's not in control. We walk by faith and not by sight. And that's what Jesus is praying for. He praises God for sovereignty, and then he prays that God would exercise that sovereignty for the benefit of the disciples so that they would glorify him. Verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Here's the principle. Jesus, the good shepherd, saves sinners and keeps them safe for all eternity. Jesus, the good shepherd, saves sinners and keeps them safe for all eternity. Jesus said, while I was on the earth, I guarded the disciples you gave me. I kept them safe. I kept them loyal to you. I gave them your word. They have obeyed your word. I want you to keep them in your name, in the Father's grace. In other words, he's saying, Father, keep them in the palm of your hand. D.A. Carson says Jesus is praying that the Father would keep his disciples in full adherence and full obedience to your character. By the way, when Jesus was here on earth, when the world wanted to attack, they attacked Jesus. They didn't attack the disciples because Jesus was present. Now that Jesus is going into heaven, who's the world going to attack? You and me, baby, because we're his representatives and he's not here. He's in heaven. That's why we need prayer. Jesus said, I guarded their faith and I didn't lose one disciple. I safeguarded everyone from danger. Jesus is the good shepherd and not one sheep of Jesus perished. Now, he said, except the son of perdition. Jesus did not lose Judas because Judas never was a true disciple. Judas was not chosen by the Father in eternity past. Judas never believed that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. Judas was never saved. He was always a hypocritical traitor that the Old Testament had predicted through David. Psalm 41, Jesus quoted, obviously, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David's writing about one of his close friends. Jesus is quoting that, and as quoted later, I think, in Hebrews. Someone once said, Judas wore the uniform, but he was never part of the team. 
He just looked like it, right? So Judas's betrayal did not mean that Jesus had failed. Jesus prayed all night before he chose the 12, and the Father told him to choose Judas, knowing he was going to be the traitor in advance. Judas acted with complete freedom. He had free will. He conspired to assist in Jesus' murder, and he did it of his own free will. By doing so, however, he fulfilled prophecy. He fulfilled scriptural prophecy that he would betray Jesus. And this word, son of perdition, it means one doomed to destruction. One doomed to destruction, which described both Judas's character and his destiny. He had chosen to submit to Satan, and therefore his character was filled with Satan and filled with evil. As a result, his destiny will be to spend eternity with Satan in the lake of fire. Because the word perdition in Scripture usually refers to hell. There's only one other person in Scripture called the son of perdition, and that's the Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2. Why this is put in here, Jesus mentions Judas in the high priestly prayer. He is an example, a terrifying example, of how close you can be to the Savior and still refuse to be saved. I mean, he walked with Jesus for three years every day, every day. Saw him work, heard his words, saw his compassion, listened to his divine words of healing and exercising demons, and yet chose to refuse to be saved. Proximity to the Savior does not make you saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting your will to Him, asking Him to save you, walking by faith, that's what gets you saved. So, Jesus in praying this section for His disciples, let me review this, He's basically saying, Father, in verses 6 to 8, the mission is accomplished. I have completed everything I am to do, you have called me to do, with these 11 disciples. And now I'm asking you, since I'm going to heaven, to keep them safe, keep them holy, protect them. I will pray for them. The Spirit will pray for them. I kept them safe, and now I'm turning them over to you and the incoming Holy Spirit for care and um, and guarding, and so that their salvation will be guaranteed. You know, one of the things we say is that once you're saved, you're always saved. Yeah, if you're saved, you're always saved. And you say, well, how is that? Because the Father has elected you, and He doesn't let go of you. You are not saved because your faith is that great. It's not. It's not. You, we and I, you and I are like, you walking across the street with your four-year-old grandchild, if you have one, and when you're walking across the intersection, who's got a hold of who? I'm going to give you a clue. You better have a hold of them, because they can let go of your hand. But if you got them by the wrist, they're not going anywhere. And if they try and run, I just pick them up. No problem, right? You're here, baby. So God has a hold of you. That's why you will make it through the intersection of life to heaven on the other side, because he never lets go. Amen? All right. Let me review, and then Tom will come and do prayer and praise. Principle number one. By faith, we can have a personal relationship with sovereign God because 
Jesus, the God-man, revealed and explained God to us. We know what God is like because Jesus came to reveal and explain him to us. Number two, if you belong to Jesus, Jesus is continually praying for you. By the way, do you thank him for praying for you regularly? Number three, Jesus prays that his Father will protect the faith of all his disciples and keep them in his grace and care. And Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. My Father has good hands. And number four, Jesus the good shepherd saves sinners and keeps them safe for all eternity. Love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.